Welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. Today's interview is part of the WBEX interview series brought to you by WBEX, the World Business and Executive Coach Summit, part of coaching.com. WBEX is the world's leading learning platform for business and executive coaches. With me on today's show is one of the presenters from the WBEX Summit, Peter Kozidoy, author of Honest to Greatness. Peter joins me to discuss how to use strategic, brutal honesty to improve your sales, marketing, recruiting, and so much more, and how to use honesty like a Jedi mind trick to spark creativity, resolve interpersonal conflicts, and become a more effective and empowered leader. So, Peter, before we jump into talking about your book, can you tell us just a little bit about yourself? I'd be happy to. Thanks for having me on the show, Maureen. So, I actually grew up on the South Shore of Boston. Some people don't realize this. I was actually a very competitive figure skater from the time I was three years old, had Olympic aspirations. The spoiler alert is that that didn't work out. Turns out that's a really difficult goal to have. I ended up going to Brandeis University outside of Boston for my undergrad Started a business right out of college at 22, had no idea what I was doing, immediately went into tens of thousands of dollars of debt. And then over the course of the following years, I ended up getting an MBA at Columbia and building that first business into what would become a multi-million dollar multinational marketing agency. We had offices across the US, Canada, worked with everyone from startups to Berkshire Hathaway and threw a party for Warren Buffett and have a lot of great stories from that. From there, it branched out into a variety of other companies. And now I live here in sunny Puerto Rico. So that's the quick and dirty version. Thank you. And an impressive list of credentials and accomplishments. I appreciate that. There's a lot of heartache and a lot of tears. And I, what's the word for it? Oh yeah. Entrepreneurship. Yeah. That, that's what it is. So. <laughs> yeah. Anyone who's done this knows exactly how hard it is. It sounds pretty on the other side. Yeah, exactly. It's like, uh, don't look at the, you know, dirt in the corner. Look at the shiny object in the middle of the room. That's essentially our job. I think entrepreneurship's the hardest job in the world and also the most fulfilling and the one that I think teaches us the most as leaders of our own lives, for sure. That's a great setup for why the book Honest to Greatness and the whole idea of don't look at the crazy behind me, look at the shiny object in front of me. What drew you to write this book? And why now? Maureen, you know, the thing about writing a book about honesty is I have to be honest. So I actually never set out to write a book about honesty. I frankly didn't even think about it, didn't even care about it. My wife gets mad at me when I say this, but I don't even think I'm that honest of a person. I ended up writing this book because I had to, because I got so pissed off over years and years of working with leaders, both on their marketing, on their internal communications, on their growth strategies, that I... I realized over time how brutally dishonest these leaders were. And again, these are you know small businesses up to $100 million operations. And time and again, I would see these leaders, I'm using air quotes, put these edicts down across their businesses without being honest about what their customers were saying, without being honest about what their employees knew, without being honest about their own gaps in knowledge or what they weren't realizing about the market. And this stuff to us, was obvious. So at the beginning, you know, as a young 20s, think I'm a hotshot and I know everything, my conclusion was, well, I'm smart and these people are a bunch of dummies, right? But of course, that was not the case. It was me who was the dummy, not them. Because what I didn't realize is they're not running around thinking like, well, I'm I'm a lying sack of crap, right? And I, I don't know these things. They just simply 
because they have been promoted into the positions that they're in, believe that everything they have done and has gotten them there. And that because that worked, well, why don't we just keep on doing those things? And so as I sort of ran down the rabbit hole of working with these individuals, building my own companies, going out there, figuring out that in fact, I didn't know everything and where do I even find a path to knowing everything? It really ended up striking me that the thing that I do, it's not really about marketing. It's not really about business growth. It's not really even about communications. It's about how do we set aside all of this ego, all of this this self-limiting BS that people on the outside can see in ourselves, but we can't see in ourselves. And what I saw in those leaders that I worked with is someone that I didn't want to be. And so I set out to sort of answer this question myself, how do I not fall into the trap of being someone running an organization and having all these outside folks look at me and say, wow, I can't believe they're doing that. Don't they see X? Don't they understand Y? That's how far I got. Then I set out to write a book and I thought I was writing a book about marketing. So I can't take credit for this. It was actually my literary agent that as he was signing me, was like, hey, Peter, I just you know, want to float this past you. It's not really a book about marketing. It's a book about honesty. And I said to him, well, clearly you didn't read any of the pitch then because I didn't use the word honesty at all. It has nothing to do with that, right? But of course, again, I, I was wrong. I went back through it and I sort of had that aha moment that this really is about honesty and, and not in the ways that we usually think about, you know, just tell the truth. There was a lot more to it than that. So I, I've, in short, Maureen, I've become like an accidental evangelist for this thing called honesty. So I'm, I'm carrying the torch as best I can. One of the things that strikes me, because most of my clients are leaders, most of them believe they're honest. <laughs> I don't think most of them get up and say, I'm going to go lie and cheat and steal stuff. Yep. And yet the level, to your point, even from really good people, we live in a culture where we kind of manage optics. We manage our appearance. All of those things that could be considered somewhat too significantly dishonest. Well, that's the question. Where do we draw the line? This is particular to coaches. Like none of us have the answers, right? But we can ask better questions. Like where's the line of honesty? Is fake it till you make it honest or dishonest? Is how we dress or portray ourselves or speak or where do we actually draw that? What's funny is as I was writing the book and beginning to talk about it with people, I would have friends or colleagues say like, oh, that's so great. I think everyone needs to be more honest. I'm so brutally honest. I just put it all out there. I don't care if I offend people. I just tell it like it is. And I would say to them, like, that's really great, but that's that's not honesty. I think that's just you being an asshole. You know, because do people like that? If you're just like, oh, well, I hate your shirt. You look like crap. Is it honest? I don't know. You know, so a lot of this is retraining people about what honesty is not. You know, honesty is not taking to Twitter with your point of view and trying to stuff it down the throats of others. Why? Well, it has nothing to do with whether it's right or wrong. It has to do with asking the very honest question, is that even effective? Does that work? Is that what you're going to use to inspire change in others? And what is a leader, if not a person, who understands how to inspire change in others? To me, that's the definition. So a lot of what I've had to do is redefine what honesty even means. And I stratify it into three levels. So the first level is honest about the community. In other words, what's going on in the world around us? You can imagine a scenario where if you needed to be honest and you were a gladiator in the year two in ancient Rome, that's very different than being honest in the context of you know the 21st century that we live in now. We have different 
societal norms. We have different pressures. We have different expectations. We need to start with that context. We've just come out of a pandemic. You know, we live in a time where people hate banks and are fleeing to cryptocurrency. You know, we live in a time where there used to be two genders. Now there are 18 or an unlimited number. There's no good, bad, wrong, right. It just is. Like That's where we are. So step one is being honest about that community around us and the fact that we operate among all these pressures. Not about judgment, just about realization and acceptance that it is what it is. The second layer is being honest with and about the others around us. Now, those are two very separate things. Sometimes we need to be honest with people, right? Say, hey, I'm sorry, I messed up. I need to take responsibility for that. I need to tell you the whole truth here and what happened. And listen, when you do that with people, usually they don't kick you when you're down, right, Maureen? I mean, usually the reaction is something like what? Thank you. Yeah. I struggled with that too. I, I noticed that you did this thing and I wasn't sure how to address it. Exactly. You know, we humans are wired to be like, oh, thank you for your honesty. That was refreshingly honest. We have these phrases in the English language for a reason. It's because we appreciate it. It's still surprising to us when we get honesty. And so, listen, being honest with others, that works, right? But for anyone out there who has kids, we also need to be honest about others. And I bring up kids because, like, I'm not sure if you think it's a good idea to just, like, blurt out every thought and feeling that you have to your kids all the time, no matter what. Probably not a good idea. Business owners, leaders probably would argue they don't want to do that with their employees. Just like, oh, here's 100% transparency on every single thing, right down to who gets paid what. Like, well, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe not. We have to be honest about others. And what I mean by that is about their ego, their biases, their self-limiting beliefs, their capacity for understanding. Now, that's a judgment call, you know, where some might think honesty is truth versus not. Well, when we start to get honest about others, the question is, are we being honest about them for their own protection? Do we really have their best interests at heart? And where we go wrong is when we think we're being honest about someone else and we, we maybe withhold information. And the real test I encourage leaders to ask themselves is when that person comes back, not if, but when they come back to you and say, I can't believe you didn't tell me this, what's the next thing out of their mouth? Is it, and you're a jerk for doing so and you should never have done that? Or is it, and I could see why you made that decision. And if it's the latter, then I would argue that honesty prevails, right? It's a perfectly honest assessment you made. And if it's a former and they're going to be upset about it, maybe reconsider they haven't been as honest about their capacity and ability to absorb that information as you thought. We've all seen that movie, right? Where there was a big secret and the person found out too late. Why were they upset? They weren't upset because of the thing. They were upset because they were left out of the loop. That's part of strategic brutal honesty. You know, I ran into a client just recently and the conversation was exactly as you mentioned, something happened and this is a C-level person. The people around him did not give him the feedback, whether they thought he was too delicate to get the feedback or just too much of a pain in the ass to give it to. Yeah. They chose not to. He was left without some very important information and it worked to his detriment and the detriment of the company, but it takes courage. It takes courage to be honest. And Maureen, this is a brutal question, but whose fault is that? Both, I would say. I don't know. I think it's the leaders. If we don't invite honesty, if we don't establish a culture of honesty, if we don't explain to people why, hey, we love mistakes, we love negative feedback, we want all of it, and here's why, and show them that that's not just lip service, we really do appreciate it. If we don't do that, that's on us as leaders. 
People who have jobs and families and incomes to protect, we really expect them to put their heads on the chopping block? That is a perfect example of being dishonest about others, right? About their motives and expectations. And there's another piece. When I try to give feedback to someone and they continually reject it, at some point, now they may no longer work for or with me. Let's take a quick detour about that because you raise a very interesting point. And then we, we got to finish out the honesty framework. Feedback is a very interesting thing because if you walk up to someone and you're like, hey, do you like feedback? Do you want to know what's going on so you could be better? 90% of people are going to be like, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, I love feedback. I could take feedback. Yeah, I want to be better. But really, when push comes to shove and you tell them, hey, this sucks. You should have done X, Y, or Z, pretty much everyone gets upset, right? Now, what I like to teach people, especially other coaches who think that they are the answer provider and that their job is to tell people what to do, that's not their job at all, right? Their job is to open up the conversation so that the person can discover on their own what it is that they need to do. Removing ego, right? It's a much more honest take on it. So to feedback's point, something I like to instill in people is don't just give people feedback. Ask them, hey, I see something that I think might be able to help. I don't want to come across as some sort of jerk. Do you mind if I share my thoughts with you? Now you've lowered that ego barrier. You've made it more possible for someone to absorb the message. These are very small tweaks that everyone can make to their behaviors and their habits that have massive, massive upside. And by the way, this works really well in a business, but try it with your wife and kids, a husband, like works really well in personal life as well. There are also people who lack the self-awareness, even when pointed out or in skillful inquiry still aren't able to see in themselves the issue or the the concern that you're raising. Absolutely. You know, when I first started coaching leaders, I saw that as a failure of my own. Why couldn't I make them personally develop or make them more self-aware? No one can make you more self-aware except yourself. That's why it's called self-awareness. You know, this is something I've had to learn that now I try to instill with other coaches. I don't have the answers. You don't have the answers. No one has the answers to what's going on in our minds, but we can have better questions. We can have better frameworks to invite them to self-explore. And what is interesting, I think a lot of people forget is folks interact during the interaction. Once you walk away from a really interesting question or from a confrontation, do you just like forget it and go on with your day and never think about it again? Of course not. It pops up. You think, oh, someone else tells you the same thing. And now you're like, oh, well, maybe that is a thing. And think it was, whatever. Like These things take time. Again, what is a true leader's job but to open up that space so other people can fill it with their own personal development and their own realizations? That's the power of what we do as leaders. So you were going to go then to the third portion of honesty. Yeah, so there are three levels to this strategic brutal honesty framework. And so the last level is being honest with and about yourself, as we've been talking about, you know, with your own biases, with your own ego with your own self-limiting beliefs as a leader. What am I missing? This getting obsessed with those curiosity type questions. What I found, which is really interesting, Maureen, is that people and organizations, happens at both levels, who can move through all three levels, get honest about the community, get honest with and about others, get honest with and about the self. What happens is in that moment, they're essentially changed. You know, if you think about it, honest Maureen is different than dishonest Maureen. Honest Maureen has different hopes, fears, dreams, aspirations, challenges, opportunities. 
And as you change yourself, you naturally change the others around you. You realize maybe a friend or a family member isn't so good for me. Maybe they're toxic. Maybe I shouldn't be associating with them. You realize that other folks that you haven't been connecting with enough can probably help you and you bring them closer. I mean, I've seen organizations go through this and make massive changes to the people who work with them. And every person they take out of the culture who wasn't a cultural fit, it's like a eureka moment. It's like, wow, I can't believe we put up with that for so long. And yet, I don't know, that person was on the payroll for 10 years. I've seen this so many times. And as you update the people in your life, I mean, that sounds so brutal, but how do we move through life if not for the people around us? As you go through that exercise and you surround yourself with what you honestly need to be a better person, better leader, that's when I've found that leaders and organizations can ultimately change the community around. They move faster. They make more money. They have a greater impact. All of these things just cascade, all tying back to that one realization, which is there is some amount of BS going on in my life that I'm not being honest about. And how can I start picking those things apart and really diving into who I really am? what I really want, and what it's really going to take to get there. I love the framework. How do you deal with, I'll give an example. I was working with someone and he basically said, I'm successful as I am. I really don't want to do much changing. One could say his lack of honesty allowed him to get to a very senior role and seven-figure comp and, you know, why am I going to change? It happens. And I would agree with him. Why should he? Now, he ultimately got fired after that, so he should have. But should he have? This word should is very interesting to me. I think we get tied up a lot in, I should be better, I should be wealthier, I should change, I should. Should you? Until there's a reason, either internal or external, then what? He learned a very, very valuable lesson. It is not lost on him that he had a conversation with you at one point where you may have said something like, hey, you know, do you wonder if what got you here might not get you to your next place? He didn't forget that. He just had to see it for himself. That's a part of who that person is. Now, after this big external event, then perhaps he'll be more open to it. And I actually call that a car crash. What I mean by that is, you know, this is part of being honest about people, how and why they change. When you think about people who like upend their entire lives, usually you think of people who have had some enormous external thing happen, like they've been diagnosed with stage four cancer and they're going to die soon or they get into a horrible accident. Some big thing happens and it shakes their whole foundation. I mean, COVID was a car crash for many people. It just shook the way they looked at life, the way they looked at their patterns and their habits and how they spend their time. And that was a big shaking moment where a lot of people adjusted how they think about themselves, how they think about their families and their work environment and so on and so forth. So the question is, can we expect people without that sort of seismic shift to just wake up one morning and say, you know, Everything I'm doing and everything I am, I think it sucks. Maybe I should just, you know, change who I am right now. Like, that's not typically how it works. The question is, you know, for coaches and for for leaders of leaders, is how can we engineer car crashes? How can we create these moments in our businesses? One instance, I've been working with a guy for a few years. He's a wonderful entrepreneur. And I helped him grow from half a million to over three million in revenue, small business, but still doing great. And one day he called me and was like, I'm sick of it. I'm gonna just going to fire all my employees. And I was like, okay, can I ask you about that? You know, again, part of being honesty and lowering that barrier. Can I ask you about that? Asking permission. He said, yes, yes, of course you can. I said, all right, well, why do you want to fire them? He said, because Peter, you and I have been working together for so long. I'm a totally different person. I'm not that old person anymore. 
and I know what I'm doing now and I know how to lead. But all my employees, they're like the same they were four years ago. They haven't evolved and I, I can't take it anymore. And I said, well, that's interesting. I said, you know, how many hours do you think we've spent together, you know, improving you? And he said, God, I don't know. I mean, a couple hours a month for, for years. I said, that's interesting. How many hours have you allowed your employees to spend improving themselves? That's the question, right? And the answer was none. Uh -huh. So how could he expect them to have come along on his journey if he didn't share that journey? One way of engineering this metaphorical car crash is simply having the leader bring everyone together, sit them down and say, you know what I realized? I realized that I suck, that I've been running this business like crap, that I have allowed things to occur in our processes and in our behavior that aren't acceptable. Is that your problem? Is that your fault? Of course not. It's my fault because I'm the leader. But I need your help now to make this better. Will you help me? That's a message you don't get every day from a leader, right? That's the type of, oh, startling moment that can begin to crack open. Begin to crack open, not transform overnight. Begin to crack open those seeds of change. Starts with vulnerability. Starts with honesty. Starts with asking permission. All these little things we can do to help manage, not people, because we don't manage people, manage egos to help manage those egos and move them towards the outcome that we know as leaders are best, not only for ourselves, but for the people around us. You've given an example of a leader who has made the shift from dishonesty to honesty. What do you do if you are an employee or even an executive, but not the person in charge or the most senior person in charge, and the organization is permeated by politics and the dishonesty that we often see in organizations? This is one that I saw a lot. And like, by the way, these are the things they don't tell you in business school. They tell you how to like manipulate spreadsheets and identify markets and all this stuff. They don't tell you that a lot of times you find people in leadership positions that can't lead their way out of a paper bag. No one tells you that, right? <laughs> but we're all like smiling and laughing about it because like, this is what happens. So the first thing to realize is there's always one person in the executive team who actually knows what's going on and who actually knows what to do. I have very rarely seen that that person is the CEO. Usually it's someone else. And usually when I come into an organization like that, that person is at odds with the CEO and therefore has politically misaligned themselves and basically kicked themselves out of any potential source of power, right? This is very interesting stuff because to think we are anything but political beings is supremely ignorant. We are politicians at work. We are politicians at home. We're always selling all the time, right? I have to sell my wife on where I want to go for dinner tonight. Because why not? And if I treat it that way, by the way, I can do it with a lot of respect and empathy and hope to get what I want and also do it in a way that I don't say something stupid like, we're going here and I don't care what you think, <laughs> which we know doesn't work. That brings up an interesting question, which is if every organization is political, what can we possibly do? And the answer to that is really in this idea of where does power come from? Now, most people stop at the idea of formal power. And what I mean by that is if you are the chief executive officer, you have this formal power. You've been given the baton and everyone respects you because you have the title. But we've all seen organizations where other people in the leadership team have plenty of power. We've seen situations where other people on the leadership team have even more power and influence. And this doesn't happen by doing things like stuffing your ideas down the throats of all your colleagues always being the person to raise their hand in every board meeting and saying, this doesn't make sense. You guys are all stupid and I know better. And of course, I'm paraphrasing and it sounds silly, but those kinds of reactions of conversations, they happen. I was brought in to consult this group once and 
the leader was like, I don't know what's wrong with everyone. I'd give them the floor to get their ideas, but nobody ever has ideas. I think they're all stupid or something. I was like, well, do you mind if I sit in on a meeting, see if that's true? And, you know, of course he like looked at me weird. Like they, they never like when I asked that, but he let me do it anyway, right? Like they're afraid of what I'll find. And sure enough, he asked this question. It's a great question. Person begins to talk about, you know, the research they've done with customers and here's why they think they should move this direction. And you could just see like the leader was sitting in the corner of like his like face would screw up and he'd be like, oh, making all these like facial gestures and grunts. And so, you know, the person eventually sort of got defeated and, you know, it was like, well, yeah, I don't know if it's a good idea or not, but that's, that's what I have and sat down. And so after the meeting, I said, uh, I have some, some notes and observations about the meeting, but I don't know if they'd be useful to you. Do you want them? Again, asking permission. He said, no, of course. Of course. I mean, that's why I hired. Of course. So I said, okay, well, I think you'd make a lot more money if you just shut the hell up. And of course, he didn't like that very much. He was like, what do you mean? And I said, you have a group of people that you pay money to. They actually seem to know what they're doing. Why are you getting in their way? Now, it turned out this was actually someone who had very little control over his own life. He had a very sick child. He had marriage that was falling apart. He had all kinds of things going on. It had nothing to do with the business. The business is where he came to exert control. Now, imagine a coaching situation where you've been brought into a situation like this and you're fixing the business problem. That has nothing to do with business. In fact, I like to remind people that 99% of business problems are personal problems in disguise. And if we can't figure out what's really going on behind the leader, behind the individual, behind their behavior and their assumptions and their actions, then we're never going to get to the root of the problem. And this was a great win. I mean, he actually came to his staff and did exactly as I described earlier, said, I've realized this about myself. I'm sorry for the way I've been acting. I owe you all much more time, credence, and respect, and I hope you hold me accountable to this. That's all it took. Didn't require firing anyone. Didn't require overhauling a company. It just took being honest. <laughs> it's amazing how simple this is and how well it works. You talk about self-limiting beliefs and the couple of questions that can navigate those. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Listen, we all walk around with this stuff, right? I mean, I walk around telling myself that I'm too short to be. I'm only 5'7". These are the types of silly things we think. You know, I'm not smart enough. I don't have the right education. I don't have the right experience. I wasn't born in the right place. And, you know, one question I like to ask people is, what are those thoughts costing you? And the two-part question that I hope really is everyone's takeaway, if you've not paid attention until now, pay attention to what I'm about to say right this second, which is just stop and ask yourself two questions. Is that true? And how do I know? Because it's amazing how often we walk around thinking things and believing things that aren't even true in the first place, but we have a feeling about it. So we never stop to ask like, oh, you know, can we actually get evidence to support that claim? And by the way, we're human beings, which means we're lazy as hell. So we don't want to do that. You know, I launched my book in the middle of the pandemic because I have great timing like that. And uh, I was on several news broadcasts and we were talking about mask wearing. I don't want to wear a mask. We're getting fights about masks. And I said, you know, what's interesting is tell me if this, if this has happened, right? That you, you walk up to someone and you tell them what you're doing is wrong. I can't believe you're doing it that way. You should change your behavior right now. And have you ever heard that person turn around to you and say, really? I'm so glad you told me that. Thank you so much. Here I was acting the wrong way. I didn't even know it. Thank you. That never happens. So for us to try to shout anyone else down, it just doesn't work. Instead, why don't you ask them a couple questions like, why are you wearing a mask or why aren't you wearing a mask? Where are you getting your information? Is it true that it helps you? Where can I learn more about that? 
and go and do the research and don't be lazy. If you don't want to be a leader, then be lazy. I don't care. But if you want to be a leader, you got to get into the numbers, find the facts, forget about the feelings. You can come back to those later. And this is usually important because just the pausing and asking, is that true? How do I know? It's amazing. The little things, the big things you believe that simply have no basis in fact whatsoever. And those thoughts cost you. It's a really interesting point because working with leaders a lot, we seem to carry old and often outdated beliefs. Oh, yeah. And so is it true? And potentially, is it true still? Yeah. And how do you know? Yeah. Because at one point it was true. There are a lot of things we think that I can't do that because I'm too young or less experienced. Totally. As a coach, you can imagine the danger in this. You know, someone tells you, you know, I'm having a problem. They describe the problem. And instead of asking, is that true? And how do we know that's the problem? We just dive right into solving it. I watch coaches do that all the time. And I just shake my head. They've gone down a rabbit hole. And at the end of it, the person being coached is like, oh, that's great. We solved the problem. Well, it wasn't the problem to begin with. So congratulations. You know, you've spent an hour going in the wrong direction, all because we didn't stop and ask those two very basic questions. Now let's pivot and talk about how can honesty solve a business crisis? That's the only thing, Maureen, that solves a business crisis. There is no other way. I'll use a very present day example. Look at all the confusion that has been caused during the pandemic by the CDC, by the government, by anyone on television talking about anything, right? Imagine a world where the CDC comes out and says, wow, we really messed that one up, didn't we? You know, we told you to do this and then we took it back and then we weren't sure and then we took too long. That's a real bummer. And we're sorry. We were trying to do the best we can. Could we have done better? Yeah, I think it's clear we couldn't have done better. And we are going to do better going forward. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to do this and we're going to do that. We're going to, and we're going to be transparent and you know, set out a plan and then follow it. That goes so far. People might still be angry about it. Oh, let me take that back. People will be angry about it because people like to be angry. But at least they will say, you know, good for them. I can respect that. At least they recognized it, right? Instead of what do we have now? Crickets. <laughs> you still have confusion. And it just erodes our respect for the institutions around us that, by the way, we need because they exist and we live in this world, right? Honest about the community. We have a center for disease control. They do certain things like we can like it, hate it. That's what it is. But, you know, the, the trust that has gotten eroded has been really bad. I don't know if you guys remember about 10 years ago, Domino's Pizza did this. They were getting feedback from their customers that their pizza sucked and they were losing market share. CEO went on national TV and he said exactly that. Guess what? All of you told us that our product is terrible. We're Domino's Pizza, so the pizza probably should be pretty good. It's the only thing we sell. And I'm sorry, and we're going to do better. And he took cameras into the kitchens. He took cameras out to the homes of customers, said, here, try this. Do you like this better? They put all that on YouTube. They just went, full, our bad. We're going to fix it. Here's what we're going to do. If you had recognized that, like if you saw the CEO on TV bashing his own product and gone and bought that stock, which sounds crazy because why would you do that? The CEO is bashing his own product. You would have had a 3,000% return over the next 10 years. 3,000%. It would have made you a multi-multi-millionaire off of pizza. It's that simple, that powerful. And we need more of it, frankly, especially right now. Especially right now. So can you use strategic honesty then, or I'm going to say, how can you, because I'm sure the answer is yes, to become a better leader? With all of the things we've talked about and the simple acknowledgement that we have these phrases in the English language, like honesty is the best policy, that we're taught from the time we're two years old, we sort of know it, but we don't know it. Like 
If I were to tell you, you, no matter who you are out there, are a no good, dirty liar, you lie to yourself and others all day long. If you are self-aware enough to ask yourself how, wow, does a whole world of potential and possibility open to you? A whole world of improving relations with not only your business and your colleagues, but your spouse and your children and your parents and all of these other relationships that are gridlocked between two egos, theirs and yours. And as we've covered, we can't change other people, but we can change ourselves. And if we're simply able to ask ourselves all the questions we've talked about, it's amazing how much and how fast we can change. And what is super interesting is people around you notice. And you know, that's one thing I've, I've actually gotten a chance. Yeah, I had a chance to work for years with, uh, with a business owner. And finally, I'm getting more involved in their business and I've gotten a chance to work with his wife, who's one of the employees. <laughs> she said to me at the end of one call, you know, I just want to tell you, my husband has changed so drastically since working with you. And I want to thank you for that. She says, I don't know if it's helped the business or not. Frankly, I don't care. But it's helped our relationship so much. Of course, it helped the business too. But that's why I coach. Like That's what makes us rewarding. And I didn't do that by telling him what to do or why he should or shouldn't be something. I just ended up asking him all the questions that we came here tonight. He already had the answers. He just needed permission to change. You, at the start of the show, talked about the person who says, I'm honest, I'm just going to tell you what I think, yeah. versus more strategic honesty. And yet that's pretty nuanced for some people. It is. But so is being a leader, Maureen. Isn't that an exercise in nuance, right? It is. And I think it's indispensable. And it's funny you, you say that because I find that honesty and self-awareness are very related in the sense that if someone tells you they're self-aware, that is the first sign that they are not self-aware at all, right? And the same thing with honesty. Like if I have to tell you that I'm an honest person, probably a sign that I'm not very honest at all because it doesn't work like that. The phrase that starts to be honest. Yeah, right. It, yes. <laughs> so, you know, there are levels to self-awareness. There are levels to honesty. And the highest level to me is the person that knows that they don't know a lot, doubts that they even know what they know, and so is content to just sit back and learn. And that really comes from a place of curiosity. And someone who's curious doesn't tell you they're self-aware and honest. Someone who's curious is too busy asking you questions because they're curious and want to learn. That's the difference. Versus the person who has to tell you their point of view. Yeah, exactly. Which is all, oh, I'm self-aware, I'm honest. Now let me tell you my point of view, which I didn't ask for. This happens all the time. And what's interesting is I want everyone listening to just watch for what Maureen and I just talked about in your interactions. You know, go to a party or a work event, just watch conversations and how they're going and watch for people who just like to hear themselves talk. They're talking to themselves. They're not talking to the person that they're talking to. They're having a conversation with themselves. That's just observing that behavior and then reflecting and asking yourself like, why do that? All right, maybe let's uh, monitor some of my own conversations. Build that self-awareness, that self-honesty. <laughs> I've watched two people have a conversation but they're both having conversations with themselves. If I ask them afterwards, like, do you know what that person said? They'd probably be like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> it's too bad. I was in a board meeting this morning and I saw probably one of the most effective groups of people and none of us had spent more than an hour together. So it wasn't like we were close friends. And almost every statement was a build on something somebody else said. Oh, yeah. So to build on what Peter said, it is helpful for people to stop speaking to themselves and truly listen and engage 
and be honest, because there was some differing point of view, but it was done with a level of grace and kindness that allowed people to hear the differences more than the bashing. Totally. And you do that well, Maureen. I heard you earlier say yes and. That's a wonderful device. You know, yes and. Or how about I heard you just say that it's better to observe yourself a conversation so you're not just you know bashing against a wall. Did I hear that correctly? Yes, great. Get agreement. Move forward. It's all these little ways you can actually make sure that you're actively listening or at least forcing yourself to actively listen, which is the same thing. Peter, you have given what I would call several sentence starters that I think are really, really helpful to frame a conversation. Are you open to feedback? Let me play that back test for understanding. Can you give us a few of those? Because I think that is one of the keys for people who are already successful and really want to take their ability to interact to the next level. We've covered a lot of them. I'll give you another really important one, which is ban the word should from your vocabulary. I don't know what you should do. I'm not you. I don't have the data you have. I don't have the insight you have. And yet, you'll see it everywhere. Personal life, professional life. You should do this. How about instead, have you considered this? Have you considered that? If so, how are you thinking about it? If not, why haven't you considered? Why do you think it might be a bad idea? Again, remaining open, curious. That's a tough one. That takes some discipline. It took me years to weave that out of my vocabulary because it's so natural. Oh, you should totally check out this restaurant. I'm like, no, Peter, don't, don't say that. You know, Have you checked out this restaurant? Oh, do you mind if I tell you about it? Here's why I thought it was awesome. Do you like that kind of food? <laughs> it's, I mean, it's a completely different way than we usually do, which is I have an ego. I want to prove to you that I found an awesome place. So you should go here. They have this and they have that. And we had such a great time. And my friend Sally came in. It, and it's like, they didn't ask about anything. And here we are rolling on. I used the question, how does that resonate with you? And that's a newer phrase for me. That's a great one. I use, is that fair? A lot. When I have introduced a proposal to someone else and I know it's not their idea, I will ask, do you think that's fair? Do you think that's a good idea? And then here's where it does not stop. It does not stop when they say, yeah, I think it's a good idea. How do I know if they think it's a good idea? Maybe they're just telling me it's a good idea, so I'll shut up, right? So I'll usually say like, are you sure? What, what do you like about it? Or even better, if this doesn't work, why do you think it won't work? So often we prime people to answer the way we want them to answer. It's taken me years to do this, to try to, to develop the habit, and I'm not perfect, try to develop the habit of priming people to say what I don't want them to say. Because if I say to someone, I have this idea, what do you think of it? Oh, it's a great idea, Peter. All right, well, if it wasn't going to work, why do you think it would fail? Mm -hmm. If they say, I really can't think of a reason, then I really know that they like it. But if they can come up with a reason it won't work, and then guess what? It's an indicator to me that they don't like it at all. It's not their responsibility to be honest with me. It's my responsibility to invite honesty from them. This is very different than how a lot of people engage. And that makes me sad because with some different word choices, again, we just open up an entire world of potential in ourselves and in others. Well, and that brings us back to the big topic of organizational culture. And you hit on it earlier in the conversation that as a leader, even in a meeting, and I don't do this as much as I'd like, but I'll often say, I have a point of view, but I'd like to hear what you think. Mm -hmm. Then I say it differently than you do. I would say, how would you make it better instead of what will cause it to fail, but still inviting input Yep. because I clearly don't have any license to all good ideas. And people on my team have seen me aim the car the wrong way on a one-way street. So we all do. 
How else do you change culture? Because some people do this brilliantly and others aren't so good. Cultural change happens to be one of my favorite projects to work on with clients. And it all comes back to a very simple premise, which is personal responsibility. Usually when cultures go wrong, it's because someone, a leader, I use that loosely, someone with formal power, has said something, we are going to be this, we're going to do this, we're going to achieve this, and then it just simply hasn't happened. And that erodes trust. And if that person doesn't have the personal responsibility to themselves and to us, then why should I, as an employee in the organization, right? We are a herd. We humans like to flock together. There's something called herd mentality, and it works both ways. It works really well with good culture, and it works really well in bad culture, just the opposite way. Something about culture, for me, is empowering everyone to take personal responsibility. And what that means is it's not your fault or your problem if the culture is not being fulfilled. It's my problem, no matter where I am in the organization. Because if everyone just simply is willing to do what they say they're going to do, complete the tasks they promise, abide by the cultural code, it's so amazing to me when people talk about change management in terms of time. Well, it takes so long. It doesn't take more than one millisecond for Maureen to decide that she is going to be different, act different, think different. Maureen, true or false, you are in 100% control of how you be, do, and act. I would say it depends. On one level, absolutely. Living in a house with someone else, I share control with my spouse on what happens. Sure, but that's the result. I'm talking about your thought process. No one else controls that but you, right? So if you sit 20,000 people in a room and you say, we are going to decide and do X, everyone can take personal responsibility and decide on a dime if that's how they're going to behave. That's possible. Now, what takes time is convincing them that when I say we're going to do what we're going to do, it's not like the last person who said that they were going to do what they were going to do, but didn't. The scarring is what takes time. The proving to people is what takes time. And so when I come in to do cultural change work, I will literally point to that. And so there's a difference, right, between like being honest and being honest and pointing to it. And so I'll say every good leader worth anything will come in here and say, I know things have been run like this. This time's going to be different. But I point to the honest and I say, I'm going to be honest with you and tell you, you shouldn't believe a word of that because how do you know? I haven't proved it to you yet. Well, what I will ask you to do is pretend, just pretend that this time really will be different. If it were, if that is actually going to be the case, how would you act? How would you behave? What would you think? How would you participate? And I want you to do me a favor and do that for four weeks. And if at the end of those four weeks, you've done all that, but I have not kept up my end of the bargain and kick me out, then go on vacation, then quit, do whatever. That's the responsibility I'm giving you. And that's our contract that I've now created that we can hold each other accountable. It is interesting, though, how often well-intended people, and I've seen this too often in myself, where I'll commit to do something, and I just fall off the wagon, not in an alcohol-related way, but I get busy, I forget to circle back with people. Every fiber of my being meant what I said when I said, I'll do X. And, you know, it's 10 or 11 at night, I'm still answering emails, I haven't gotten back to somebody, or I have gone around someone unintentionally just to get stuff done at whatever hour of the day or I'm multitasking in a meeting, which I know I shouldn't do, but we all do so I can get to somebody quickly and I drop the ball. 
that chips away? How do you create a culture where Dan, who's sitting on our show right now, can say, hey, Maureen, you said you'd do this. And, you know, six times now you haven't done it. The question you asked is exactly the right question. How do we build that into the culture? I have all kinds of ways. We open up a suggestion box email address, you know, or it's like, hey, report everything in. We have daily or weekly huddles where we ask people to crap on each other. Hey, Dan, what did you see that Maureen did that pissed you off? Keeping that is not surprising people. It's having agreed on that. Hey, we don't want any feelings to fester here. I'm going to let you down. Maureen's going to let us down, whatever. When that happens, I want to be able to have a clearing of the air. Do we think as a group, it's a good idea if we come together once a week and we ask this silly question, who's pissed off at who? Do we see the value in that? Get buy-in, bring it into the cultural code and into the process. Maureen, as painful as that is, so much more painful if we let that stuff just run amok and feelings fester and then people start running around each other and it, that doesn't work. And there's so many examples we can draw on where it doesn't work that most people today get it and they're willing to come along because like they're like, yeah, I mean, that's going to be painful, but I get why it's important. And and we can put language in place. So it's not, you should have done X. We don't say that, right? So all these things work together. How do you use honesty strategically beyond simply making honesty a core value? I did a core values hierarchy one time. And actually, honesty for me doesn't even come up that high. There are other values above it, like service. If I know a friend has been wrongly accused of something and they've gone to jail for it and if I lie, it'll get them out of jail. I will do that because that core value of service and justice is higher than honesty. You know, whereas for other people, they would never make that trade. So I'm always weary about the, the honesty as a core value thing. I, I think that allows for people to, to sort of stop there. They're like, well, I'm an honest person, right? I think for me, it's the instilling all the various techniques that we've talked about, all the extensions of honesty. Where does it intersect with transparency or self-awareness? or accountability, or any of these things. And try to adopt, a, I call it a, an honest leadership style, but really it should just be leadership style, you know, with a capital L. I mean, to be able to be a leader without these devices for me, it's like uh, you know, rowing a, a boat with a half a paddle. It's like, well, what about the other tools and, and ways we need to get honest about how people work, the society we live in? I'm imagining a circle with spikes coming out not like a dog collar spikes, but <laughs> lines coming out. Honesty in the middle, each feeder to that would be empathy, self-awareness, social awareness, uh -huh. judgment, that all of those influence how honesty shows up for me at this moment. So to your point, you would be dishonest if your core value is service above, quote, truth, which for many people would be interpreted differently by 10 different people if you've got 10 people in a room. You really hit the nail on the head, Maureen, because how to really implement this stuff is about buy-in. It's about what does the culture say we do? If the culture doesn't say that we can get in a room and ask each other to expand on things that have happened that we think could be better, like we don't open up that dialogue in our code of conduct, then we're just surprising people and pissing them off. We may think it's honest, but it's not helpful. So, you know, a lot of this is how do we set structures in place to make sure we're using this smartly and effectively? That's exactly the work that I do. And it doesn't take a big imagination to extend this. Think about you have two coaches. One of them deeply understands that diagram you just diagrammed out. And the other is just solving whatever problems appear on their plate. You're going to have wildly different outcomes. Now imagine an organization of even, let's say, a small business of 50 people. 
all with these frameworks and mannerisms of speaking and allowances and opportunities to be transparent. Can you imagine how much farther that business will go versus one that just operates like, I don't know, 99% of the companies on earth do? I mean, you're talking staggering returns. And this is what has made me most excited about talking about a thing, honesty, that I never thought I'd talk about because I'm the capitalist. Like, I'm about the money, people. This has real profitable outcomes if you do this right. It's not about like, oh, let's be honest. Like, cool, you be honest, I be honest. I don't really care. I care about people making money, people dominating their markets. That's why I do what I do. And it is surprising to me, shocking to me, that the way to do that is through strategic brutal honesty, this thing that we learn at two years old. We use words like unwavering commitment to right action to point to this. I love it. And professional humility, willing to say that was the direction I thought we should go. And oops, CDC, middle of a pandemic, don't have the information. You've got to say the science has given us additional data and we have to change direction. Right. Understandable. You hope. <laughs> More understandable than silence. Yeah. Because silence is the worst and people fill in their own truth. I love everyone who's like, well, I'm just living my truth. Well, good for you. That means you're completely disconnected from reality and what's going on in the world. There's no my truth and your truth. There is, let's try to agree and understand on what might be true in the middle. This is like the three sides of the story. Your story, my story. Those two things, by the way, are completely irrelevant. What actually happened is a third thing, independent of our memories and our feelings and all this other crap that gets in the way. We can be really good leaders by sleuthing out that middle ground. You know, what's actually going on? What actually happened? Is it true? How do we know? All these frameworks. As you're talking about true, being held up at gunpoint years ago in a hair salon, the detective comes out, he shows us an array of pictures. The only thing all the witnesses agreed on was he was a white man and he had a gun. We didn't agree on facial hair. We didn't agree on anything else. Height stature, color of hair. We all identified the gun. It's amazing. Because that's what we looked at. And that was under stress, but most of us are under some level of stress all the time. Absolutely. So our ability to recount what happened at the end of the day is suspect. Wildly poor. I'll call it wildly poor. I really appreciate the distinction between true versus is my point of view. And as long as I can then separate truth my point of view, then I can be curious without being wrong. You're exactly right. And that to me is like when people rail against like social media and why aren't they policing the truth? And this is very controversial. I like to remind people, do you really want to hand over this definition of truth to a third party with a profit motive or a third party that barely does their government nine to five job and then goes home? Like these are the people you want to dictate truth to you? I think that's completely opposite. We should be helping empower people to have their own BS detectors, to do the hard work, to distinguish fact from fiction, to read, to get different perspectives, to figure out what's really honest. Now, that's a slippery slope. I can't imagine as being someone who teaches what I teach, telling people, hey, you know, and by the way, you can just outsource all that, figuring out what's true to someone else. No problem. It's crazy. to me. It is. And yet, how many people considered drinking bleach and how many people did drink bleach to address COVID? Yeah, well, we can't save everyone, Maureen. I mean, <laughs> we'd need another show to go down that rabbit hole. There's an interesting balance. That one's 
I don't have an answer. I have a lot of questions. Talk about curiosity. I don't think I have an answer to drinking bleach either. I'm going to leave that one for the Netflix. <laughs> Where we get information and how much and how discerning we have taught people to be. Because not everyone even reads well, let alone has access to the information that we would wish they did. Yeah. Well, I want to empower people to take that on themselves. Personal responsibility. You know, that's part of this. Everyone's a leader in their own life, whether they realize it or not. And this is simply part of leadership. That's a brilliant point. As we're coming closer to our end, we each are at a point of choice. And I realized I was being a little cheeky and who in my house makes decisions. But I do get to choose. I get to choose how I see the world. I get to choose how I behave. And there are consequences to each of those choices. Sure are. And if I want to stay married, I attend to the other person in that equation. That's honesty, right? Or being honest about what's going on, you know, about the other person, about what it takes to achieve your goals. Absolutely. Uh -huh. This has been an incredibly rich discussion. So asking you to summarize seems a little unfair. <laughs> but if you wanted someone to take away a couple of points, you talked about the question, mm -hmm. is this true? How do you know? What else do you want people to take away? I want people to ask themselves something else that's really important. We all lie to ourselves. So what are we lying to ourselves about? I think is a wonderful one, right? Because there are things. And there are people listening to this who will think some big things. I'm lying to myself about uh, that I actually hate my clients or I actually hate my spouse or I actually whatever. Like, are you willing to live with whatever you find at the end of that road? You know, and that really comes back to who are you? What type, what type of person are you? There's no judgment there. It's just a question, you know, because our identity is tied to the actions we take, the decisions we make. This whole honesty thing can lead to a lot of, uh, a lot of change, a lot of disruption. Are you the kind of person who's comfortable living your life the way you're living it if you know there's more honesty to be had? I can't answer that question for you, nor would I judge anyone for staying, going, changing, whatever that answer is. Again, it's not going to do a judgment. But I don't want people to sit in a pile of their own making without at least making the conscious choice, the conscious choice, not the easy and comfortable and I've been making this choice, okay? The other thing is people around you are lying to you. They're lying to you in the boardroom and at work and at home and whatever. Try to ferret that out. Someone around you is lying to you. Who is it and what are they lying about? Because in answering that question, you can often unlock some incredible value in business, you know, oh, there's this piece of information, Maureen, you had brought it up earlier, the leader that didn't get that key piece of information, you know, it can have dire consequences. And at home, what about a child going through something that they haven't told you about? A spouse that is on the, let's go to extremes, on the brink of leaving, you had no idea until you opened up these conversations. These sound sort of weird, but these are all things that have happened <laughs> as I'm coaching individuals over the years that we discovered. And to think that those don't bleed into our work, our businesses, our ability to make money, it's all related. What's going on with our personal selves as leaders, it's all related to how we achieve success in the business world. As you say that, the word that strikes me is vulnerability and courage. Yeah. That if I am willing to be vulnerable to the spouse who's unhappy with me, to my colleagues who are unhappy with me, and maybe it's just little stuff, mm -hmm. and creating the system and culture for that, then we promote a path to clearing the air when it's little, not big. You're 100%. You said it great. So, Peter, thank you. 
How would people, I'm assuming they get your book on Amazon, but give us the rundown on where they get a hold of you and your content. Sure. You can find Honest to Greatness on Amazon, of course, or wherever books are sold. I hope to pick up a copy. I hope to pick up a copy for your colleagues. Just don't hand it to them and say, hey, I really think you need to read this book because that could come off a little wrong. So you may want to couch that a little better. I do workshops for leaders all around the world where uh, they read through the book, come in, do a beautiful three-hour opening up of all these things so that they can then begin to make the change in their organizations that they like. You can also find me at petercosloy.com, honesttogreatness.com goes to the same place. On that website is a free two-minute honesty quiz that will tell you your honesty type. So you can begin to get into this and learn a little more about yourself. And then, of course, if you don't like the results, you can tweet at me or send me an email and tell me that I suck. So petercosadoy.com, spell Cosadoy, please. K-O-Z-O-D-O-Y. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Peter. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us and for engaging with this content. My hope is that you not only listen and go on and do the same thing you've always done, but that you put some of it in practice and find where you are being dishonest with yourself, your colleagues and others, and with and about your community, and put a couple of changes into practice. Thank you for listening. Like us, share the content, and please join us again. And thank you to W. Bex as our sponsor. Thanks for being honest. <laughs>